0: Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Today we are joined by Dr. Jonathan White of Christopher Newport University. Dr. White is the author or editor of 13 books and more than 100 articles, essays, and reviews about the American Civil War. He's written books such as Emancipation, The Union Army, and the Re-election of Abraham Lincoln, Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the American Civil War, and most recently, My Work Among the Freedmen, The Civil War and Reconstruction Letters of Harriet M. Buss, To Address You as My Friend, African-American's Letters to Abraham Lincoln, and A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House. Today, Dr. White joins us to discuss African-Americans and Abraham Lincoln and the relationship between the two. I hope you enjoy this discussion. So today we are joined by Dr. White. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for sitting down. So today we're going to dig into African-Americans and Lincoln. We're going to look at the relationship between the two, uh, see Lincoln's views, his shifting views throughout his life, and then we will talk about Dr. White's two recent publications, correct?
1: Yeah, two books. One, a collection of letters to Lincoln, and then another, a collection of stories about African Americans meeting Lincoln. Yeah,
0: I'm very excited to dig into that. I saw you have quite a few publications, yeah. uh, Those are your two most recent ones. So, so let's just kind of dig into Lincoln's early years and uh, his views on African Americans then. What is his first encounter with slavery? Um, he takes this trip down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. He actually does this twice. Is this right. his first encounter with slavery when he goes into the South? Is it when he meets the Todd family? What is his uh, first encounter? And what does he think of slavery when he first
1: sees it? It's a great question. You know, he was born in Kentucky, so he's born in a slave state. There's one source that suggests that on the the day he was born that his father was away on jury duty and that there was an enslaved woman who was there at the birth. That source is from way after his death, so it may not be reliable, may not be true, but It's possible that there was a slave present when Lincoln was born. He encountered slavery at a young age because he lived near the Cumberland Road, and so he presumably saw slave coffles going back and forth not far away from his home. But the reality is that his first real encounter with slavery is this trip to New Orleans in 1828, and then another one that he took in 1831 where he almost certainly saw slave auctions taking place. And that seems to have had a pretty profound impact on him. There's a story that he saw one of these slave auctions and was with his buddies. And he said, let's get out of here, boys. One day I'm gonna hit that thing and hit it hard. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't, he probably didn't say that. I mean, that story dates actually back to around 1865, 1866. So it's a very old story. But the person who told it was not there with Lincoln at the time. And we know, like, I often can't remember what I did last week. So, (laughs) you know, how well did someone remember what Lincoln had said 35 years earlier, 36 years earlier? Um, It may not be reliable. But I do think that the evidence is pretty conclusive that seeing slave sales in New Orleans was something that really impacted his thinking. One other just very quick story I'll tell on that 1828 trip down to New Orleans, he and the, the guy he was with, whose last name was Gentry, they were going down the, the river and they stopped near a plantation on the side of the river in Louisiana. And they were getting ready to be camped out for the night and seven slaves from a plantation nearby came and tried to beat them up, potentially kill them and steal the things that Lincoln and Alan Gentry had on their flatboat. And uh, Gentry, I think Gentry had the idea. He shouted, hey, Lincoln, get the guns and shoot. And they didn't have guns, but the slaves didn't know. So they ran off. And it's this really interesting moment where it may be that 30 years later, some of those men were still alive and, and declared free by the Emancipation Proclamation. So that's another one of Lincoln's early encounters with slavery.
0: So he's not super comfortable with slavery when he first sees it.
1: Yeah, Lincoln later said that he always hated slavery, and I think that that's probably true. His parents were anti-slavery. They were from an anti-slavery church, although his parents both had been born in Virginia and raised in Kentucky, so they had been raised in a slave society with some slaveholding in their extended family, but they moved from Kentucky to Indiana And Lincoln said that his father decided to make that move partly on account of slavery. So part of it had to do with we're going to move out of a slave state into a free state. The other thing that led them to move was they measured land in Kentucky on what was called meets and bounds. So it's kind of like, okay, I'm gonna buy this land from you. And it goes from this rock to that hill. It's not a very precise way of measuring land. And Thomas Lincoln had lost a ton of money in in lawsuits. And so he wanted to go to a new state where they measured it actually by surveying the ground using surveying tools for that. And so uh, they moved partly on account of slavery and partly on account of land suits.
0: I could imagine quite a few issues arising today if we did meets and bounds. (laughs) That's right. So Lincoln encounters slavery in New Orleans, uh, and then he meets young Mary Todd, and he's smitten, and they end up marrying. Um, And the Todd family is a slave owning family. So, how does Lincoln feel about marrying into a slave owning family? Especially as you mentioned, he's uncomfortable with it, um, his family's against it. So, how does he feel joining a family that owns slaves?
1: It's a great question. I don't know that he wrote about that specifically, but it had to be an impactful thing for him because anytime he went to Lexington, he encountered slavery and slaves in the Todd home. They were not far from the square where there were slave auctions. And there are accounts of just how brutal those slave auctions were, the sounds and the sights of those sort of things. And so it had to have an impact on his, his thinking.
0: Yeah, so Lincoln's a fairly, I don't want to say sensitive in a negative way, but sensitive person. And and so he's definitely impacted by these sites, it sounds like, the brutality of it, where his uh, peers probably weren't.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how hardened people in that era became to slavery, the slave traders. I mean, I have a colleague, Robert Colby, who is writing a book about the slave trade during the Civil War. And so he's tracing all these slave traders who have no qualms with dividing up families. And if they see mothers and children or husbands and wives were being separated and weeping, they're just so cold and callous towards them. And that was not Lincoln at all. Lincoln had a real soft heart for the suffering and whether whether it was people who were suffering or animals i mean there are a lot of stories about lincoln rescuing pigs and baby birds and other you know dogs and cats and things at, even as president i mean lincoln was on the at the front once and saw these little kittens that had been orphaned and he gave them to a colonel and said you know take care of these little waifs and make sure that they're you know cared for so lincoln really does have a heart for the suffering and that's one of the big themes that comes out of my latest book which is called a house built by slaves african american visitors to the lincoln white house i have one chapter about Lincoln going around the city of Washington during the Civil War and encountering African-Americans. And for most white people of that era, they meet a Black person and they're not going to treat that person with respect. They're not going to shake her hand or call her by her name or him by his name. And But Lincoln does that. He always shows humility and respect to people. Whether And you know, Link, it, it's really an interesting trait in Lincoln. Lincoln, as a young boy, went hunting and shot a turkey and was so horrified by seeing the animal die that he never hunted again. And that was just part of who he was, showing compassion for all of God's creatures around him, whether they're animal or, or people.
0: So very different than his peers at the time, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, very different. I mean, that's a society where you, you have to hunt to eat right. in a lot of parts of America. And so the fact that he was was so compassionate towards creatures is a uh, is really different. Well, so he's doesn't like slavery,
0: um, as you've stated, but he does support some colonization, um, mm-hmm. sending African Americans back to Africa. So is this something he truly believes in? Is this just a political stance he takes? Why is there this
1: seeming disconnect between the two ideologies? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that scholars really disagree about. I think that Lincoln really believed in colonization. This was an idea that had been around for 50 years, maybe longer in the United States. The idea that black and white people can't live together in peace and harmony. So if black people become free, then they should go somewhere else. Now to be precise, Lincoln never supported forced deportation for him. It was always voluntary, but he, I think he really did believe that it was a a gesture that, should be made to poor white people in the north. You don't have to worry about emancipation. If the slaves become free, I'm going to try to get them to move somewhere else, and that way they won't be economic competition for you. There was a small portion of the Black community in in the United States that supported colonization, including people like Frederick Douglass's sons. Douglass did not support colonization, but at least one, maybe two of his sons did. And so I think Lincoln had a sense, maybe a false sense of how broad that support was, but he definitely did support colonization. He got Congress to allocate $600,000 for colonization in 1862. He spent some of that money trying to see if colonization could work. So there's that aspect of it. On the other hand, I think Lincoln also knew that there's 4 million slaves in the United States and however many free black people, you can't ship all those people out of this country. And I think Lincoln knew that that would never be practical. So that's where it's hard to know the line between how much did he really believe in it and how much was it a political thing? And you know, in August of 1862, Lincoln invited a delegation of black leaders from Washington to come to the White House and this was a really remarkable moment because it's the first time in the history of the country that a president invites black people to the white house to talk about politics he proceeds to then lecture them for an hour about why they are the cause of the war and you know if black people weren't here white men wouldn't be slitting each other's throats and so they should take they should lead black people out of the country through colonization and he says to them you know if you don't want to go it's really selfish of you and you should be like George Washington you should make sacrifices for the country and it's it's just this horrible really condescending speech that as a lincoln guy it's one of these two moments where i'm like come on abe if you hadn't said that like it'd be so much easier to talk about lincoln and race in 2022 but you know there was a political calculation here lincoln knew that he was about to issue the emancipation proclamation And so he called in a stenographer to be in the room to write down everything he said so that it would get sent out to the the masses. And I think that Lincoln's real audience for that meeting was not the five black men or black people in general, but a racist white Northern electorate who didn't want emancipation. And I think Lincoln was trying to prepare them for an emancipation proclamation that was coming in other words, get them to realize, okay, when emancipation comes, you don't have to be too worried about it, because I am going to try to push this colonization thing. Mm -hmm. Now, Lincoln met with that those five Black leaders in August of 1862. Shortly after that meeting, he called another Black leader to the White House, a man named Henry McNeil Turner, who was a minister in Washington, D.C., who wrote regularly for the largest Black newspaper in the United States. It was called the Christian Recorder. It was the newspaper of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in um, Philadelphia. And Turner wrote an editorial or letter to the editor shortly after all this took place, and he essentially hinted that he'd met with Lincoln and that Lincoln's heart really wasn't in colonization, but that, in Turner's words, Lincoln needed somewhere to point to. In other words, this this meeting with the Black delegation pushing colonization was a, was a bit of misdirection, so Lincoln was pointing over here to sort of take other people's attention off of what he was really up to, which was bringing about emancipation. Now. You can argue about how ethical that is to use colonization and Black people as, as sort of political tools in that calculation. But I do think it's telling to say that Lincoln's end game, his larger goal in all of this, was to ultimately bring about emancipation.
0: I you say that it's difficult to defend him because of these two moments in 2022, and I understand because I'm a Grant guy, and there's yeah. a few there's a few Ulysses S. Grant things where I'm like, uh, if you hadn't done that, you'd be you'd be so good, but you know yeah. they have these blemishes, so I understand. So Lincoln gets elected to the state legislature in Illinois. Uh, Does he make any views on slavery when he's elected there? Does he make any pushes to get rid of it or in support of it? What are his views when he's a state legislature?
1: Yeah, there's one really famous moment in 1837 where the state legislature adopts resolutions condemning abolitionists. And many state legislatures were doing this. Abolitionists were seen as radical, wild-eyed fanatics who are destroying the nation. And Lincoln refuses to sign on to those resolutions. And not only that, he writes out a minority set of resolutions calling out abolitionists for being too radical, but also um, calling for abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia and criticizing the state legislature for the resolutions that they've adopted. And I, if memory serves correct, there were six state legislators who refused to go along with the resolutions that the, the whole legislature adopted. But he could only find one guy to agree to put his name on these minority resolutions. And his name was Dan Stone. And I think the only reason Dan Stone was willing to do that was because Dan Stone was a lame duck guy. He was leaving the legislature to become a state judge. And so he didn't have to worry about the, the backlash for, for doing this. And so, you know, on the one hand, Lincoln was critical of abolitionists early on, but he's also critical of the pro-slavery movement early on. And it took courage to be one of two people to stand against everyone else and sign a a minority report and offer your own resolutions that were anti-slavery. And so, and, you know, this was an era where the governor of Illinois was very supportive of slavery and the governor was talking about how evil, when the governor talked about evil in those days, he wasn't talking about slavery. He was talking about abolitionism. And so to stand against that took a lot of courage and that was Lincoln's position for the majority of his life that he was, He was a moderate anti-slavery politician. He was not a radical. He was not an abolitionist, but he believed slavery was morally wrong, and, and he fought against it in the political sphere. Now, at the same time, he, again, at that early stage in his life, did not support egalitarianism for African Americans. So in the 1820s, Martin Van Buren had supported limited Black suffrage in New York. And the Whig party around the country, including Lincoln, got made great hay out of that. They they advocate they did not support Black suffrage. And so in the 1830s and 40s, you have Lincoln publicly coming out against Black voting rights. So he's not an egalitarian early on. His views are going to change over time. So that by the end, we you know, jumping forward 30 years, by 1865, Lincoln comes out publicly in support of black suffrage. John Wilkes Booth is in the audience. It says that means N-word citizenship. That'll be the last speech he ever gives and then kills Lincoln four days later. And so there is this really important shift that takes place in Lincoln's life from being more moderate to more progressive on uh, race issues, even to the support of Black suffrage by the end.
0: What accounts for that shift? Why does he go from not supporting it to supporting it? Is it the war? Is it, I mean, I know for Ulysses S. Grant, his views change because he serves with uh, African-Americans, he sees them fight. What is it that changes Lincoln's mindset?
1: I think for Lincoln, it's meeting black people in Washington during the war. And so I've got several chapters on the in the book that touch on this suffrage issue. In 1864, there were at least three delegations of black men who come and meet with Lincoln at the White House for the specific reason of pushing for black voting rights. The first group comes in March of 64. They are two very light-skinned Black men known as Creoles from New Orleans who they have English, African, French, and Spanish ancestry. They're very wealthy. They pay taxes. Their ancestors had served with Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. They are serving in the army And they go to Lincoln and they say, look, we are freeborn, we pay taxes, we're educated, we should have the right to vote. And Lincoln meets with them and says, essentially, the right to vote is controlled at the state level. There's nothing I can do about it as president. I agree with you. You should have the right to vote. But unless it somehow can be shown to help the union war effort, I can't do anything about it. So they meet with Lincoln on March 4th. 3rd or 4th, 1864. They come back a few, about 10 days later, March 12th, with a new petition. And in this one, their argument has shifted. They no longer want Black voting rights just for light-skinned, wealthy, elite Black people. They want voting rights for all Black men, whether born into slavery or not, whether educated or not. And the argument they now make is At some point, the nation's gonna come back together and there's gonna be a whole lot of white men who have been traitors for the last four years who are gonna regain the right to vote. Let's counteract that by enfranchising black men. They've been the most loyal voter or most loyal people in the South for the last few years. And Lincoln listens to that and he's persuaded by that. And as early as March of 1864, he begins working behind the scenes to push for black suffrage at the state level in the former in the Confederate States. And then he publicly comes out in support of black voting rights again in April 11th, 1865, and it costs him his life. And so he meets with that delegation in March of 64. He meets with a delegation from North Carolina in April of 64. And those guys, they are very dark skinned. Half of them have been born into slavery. Some half have been born free. They They go to Lincoln and they say, look, Black men voted in North Carolina from 1776 until 1835, and there was never any problems with it. We deserve the right to vote. And again, Lincoln shows that support, but he he can't do it publicly yet. And so um, I think it's these meetings that really push him on this issue and get him to do a complete 180 from where he had been before the war.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So it's actually interacting, um, doing what a lot of people at the time probably wouldn't have done. So Lincoln is in the state legislature. Um, He eventually gets elected. And when he's elected, he states that he's not going to touch slavery where it exists. Um, He's trying to preserve the Union. So does he actually intend to not touch the issue of slavery? Um, Or is this again, a political maneuver, uh, because he's trying to not inflame the South?
1: Yeah, again, this is something historians disagree about. So my view is that Lincoln, on the one hand, believes in the Constitution and his oath of office. So he believes as president he can't do anything he wants. He's bound by the Constitution to preserve and defend and protect it and to abide by it. And Lincoln's understanding of the Constitution is that it it allows the states to have slavery if they want it and so the principle of freedom in Lincoln's mind is a national one but the constitution allows South Carolina or Tennessee or Virginia to have slavery if they want it and and because of that he can't touch slavery where it exists and so that is his position I won't touch slavery where it exists but I I will stop it from spreading and He clings to that for the first year or so of the war, but at the same time, he begins taking measures to try to strike at slavery where he believes the constitution allows him to. So in May of 1861, he puts the interior department in charge of destroying the transatlantic slave trade. The slave trade had been illegal since 1808, but slave traders continued to operate illegally, bringing Africans into the United States. They had never gotten punished because either people just turned the other way, turned a blind eye to it, or they would bribe jurors so that the slave traders would get acquitted, or they would allow the slave traders to escape from prison. Like, for whatever reason, slave traders never got punished. And Lincoln decided, no, I'm gonna put my foot down. And so they negotiated a new treaty with England to really tighten up the blockading around the African coastline to stop the slave trade. And then he actually executed a slave trader in 1862 because he wanted to make an example. And what was crazy is this guy was named Nathaniel Gordon. He had kidnapped almost a thousand people in Africa most of them women and children. And he got caught under the Buchanan administration. He went to trial, had a hung jury. Lincoln came back and, and re-prosecuted him. And Gordon never saw it coming. He never thought he was going get, to get convicted. And he gets convicted. And he gets sentenced to be executed. And thousands of people write to Lincoln, pleading with Lincoln, don't execute this guy. You know it's not fair. He didn't think that he'd get executed since no one else was ever executed before. You know, you just make the example and let him go. And Lincoln said, no, Lincoln put his foot down. This guy is going to pay the cost. Mm -hmm. Lincoln did give him a two-week stay of execution, Lincoln said, so that he can prepare for the awful change, which is about to come. In other (laughs) words, like get ready to meet your maker. And So that's one example. Lincoln works with the border states. He tries to persuade them, let Congress buy your slaves and set them free. That's called compensation. The Fifth Amendment requires that if the government takes your property, you need just compensation. The border states wouldn't go along with it. In April of 1862, He ends slavery in Washington, D.C., signing an act of Congress in March of 1862. He and Congress make it illegal for the Union Army to return fugitive slaves to Confederates. So he's striking at slavery in various ways for a year and a half before the Emancipation Proclamation is issued. But he... So I do think he wanted to strike at slavery from the very beginning, but he tried to do it in ways that the Constitution allowed for. And then ultimately, he gets to the point where the Union is not winning the war, they need a stronger attack mechanism against the Confederacy. And so he says, all right, the way to do it is I'm going to destroy slavery in the Confederate States and I'm going to declare those slaves free so that they can no longer help the Confederates against their will. And I'm going to welcome them into the Union army as soldiers and laborers. So it's a double-edged sword. You hurt the Confederacy and you help the Union. I'm doing it as commander-in-chief as a military necessity to save the Union. And and so um, what had been unconstitutional in Lincoln's mind in March of 1861 has now become constitutional in Lincoln's mind because it's his way of fulfilling his oath to protect the Constitution, to win the war.
0: Well, and you mentioned that he views the Constitution kind of as his highest duty. Um, He has a quote where he says, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. So when Lincoln takes office, is he more concerned about uh, the Constitution? Is that his focus, preserving the Union, or is it helping African Americans, or is that kind of the secondary goal of his?
1: Yeah, I mean, his primary goal is saving the Union. In that letter that you just read from, he starts that paragraph by saying, my paramount object in this war is saving the Union, paramount object. Now, what's really important about that letter is when Lincoln wrote it. Lincoln wrote it on August twenty second, 1862. And here's the context. So July 22nd, 1862, Lincoln tells his cabinet, I've come to the conclusion that now is the time to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. That's how we're gonna win the war, save the Union. And his cabinet is kind of divided. Some support it, some don't. But his Secretary of State, William Seward says, essentially, that's the right move, but the wrong time because the war is going badly. We've just lost the Peninsula Campaign. We got stuck outside of Richmond and repulsed. If we issue an Emancipation Proclamation now, to use a modern metaphor, it's going to look like a Hail Mary pass at the end of a football game. It's going to look like an act of desperation. And the powers of Europe, England and France, will, will recognize that, and they'll want to then recognize the Confederacy. And so Seward persuades Lincoln, wait until we've won a major battlefield victory, and then issue an Emancipation Proclamation. That way it doesn't look like it's coming from a position of weakness. And Lincoln realizes that that's really wise advice. So he waits and he waits. And while he's waiting for a victory to come, which is not gonna come until Antietam on September 17th, while Lincoln is waiting, he does a couple things to prepare the population. So he has that meeting with the black delegation. And another thing that he does Horace Greeley, the most important editor in the North of the New York Tribune, writes a a public statement, an editorial called The Prayer of 20 Millions, where he says Lincoln, hey, Congress passed a Confiscation Act. You need to do something. You need to start seizing slaves. And Lincoln has to respond. And so he writes this, this public response to Greeley, where he says, my paramount object in this war is to save the Union. If I could do it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could do it by freeing some of the slaves, I would do it. If I could do it by freeing uh, uh, or all, none, or some, I would do it. And you know, Lincoln lays out two extremes, all or none, and then a middle ground, freeing some. And what Lincoln was doing there was he was saying again to this white racist northern electorate, do you believe in saving the Union? like I do? Yes, you say you do. Well, then you should be willing to do whatever it takes. And if that means freeing all the slaves, then that's what we need to do. Or if that means freeing none of the slaves, then that's what we need to do. And if, if we need to free some of the slaves, then that's what we need to do. And ultimately, Lincoln frees some. That's what his policy does. And so I think that that letter today is often taken out of context for people. I, I've had students say to me, well, Lincoln didn't really care about Black people because he wrote this letter. And then when I explained to them, well, but here's the context. He had already decided to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. He's just waiting till the right time politically and militarily. So you can then see how he's using it to, to get Northern voters to realize that emancipation might actually be a good thing. And uh, ultimately, union is goal number one, but emancipation becomes the means and then ultimately a twin goal. They they have to work together to win.
0: So he's quite the cunning politician here. He's getting his personal goals of freeing African Americans. He's getting the northern population ready for it he's also saving the union um and he's also getting england and britain i mean sorry england and france from being able to join the confederacy by issuing this so he's accomplishing all this with one stone here basically
1: yeah i mean it's he's a masterful politician it's it's remarkable to me how he was able to do everything he did i mean he not only is waging a war He's got 2 million men in arms against a million in the Confederacy. He's having to grapple with all these international issues and all these moral issues. And then, you know, he has office hours like I do as a college professor where people could just line up and come in and talk to him about whatever they want. And he would have to listen to them and try to do what he could. I, I just don't know how he balanced everything. You know, I was at the National Archives yesterday. You'll be jealous of this. I, I went through a pension file and saw two U.S. grant signatures on it. I couldn't believe it on one document. Um, and, you know, oftentimes when I go through these files, I see Lincoln signatures. I go through, I've gone through hundreds of, of court martial and military commission case files. And I've seen I don't know how many scores of Lincoln signatures So not only is he doing all this stuff, but he's in the minutia of the lives of ordinary Americans who are either writing to him or petitioning him for pardon and he's reviewing their case files and writing notations on them and I feel busy in my own life I don't know how he did it it's it's really incredible.
0: Yeah, that is something that's like there's a great scene of that um, in the Lincoln film where people are coming in to talk to him during his office hours. So if anyone wants to see a visual of that, that uh, does exist. So African-Americans, he issues the Emancipation Proclamation and eventually they do begin to serve in the Union Army, uh, but they don't receive equal pay. Um, Speaking of films, Glory has a great scene of uh, them protesting, not getting equal pay. So does Lincoln have a say in this? And if so, why does he not give African-Americans equal pay?
1: Yeah, so what the War Department, once Black men begin serving in the Army, what the War Department decides is we're going to pay them as laborers under the Militia Act of 1862 and not as soldiers. And this is a really big problem because Black men have enlisted in the Army expecting to be soldiers and to be treated as such and to be paid as such. And so I I edited a collection of African-American letters to Abraham Lincoln, Um, called to address you as my friend. And it has 125 letters in it. And there are two chapters worth of letters, one full chapter, and then a lot of other letters scattered throughout where this pay issue is central, where black men and women are writing to Lincoln. These are soldiers and their wives and their parents. And they're saying, look, we were promised a certain level of pay and we are suffering because not only so white soldiers got $13 a month. So that's what black soldiers were expecting. But as laborers, they get paid $10 a month. And then they have an additional $3 a month deducted as a clothing allowance. So they expected 13 and they're getting seven. And I mean, there's inflation back then, they're they're suffering. And so they write to Lincoln calling for equal pay. In some individual cases, Lincoln acts. So there was the, the chaplain of the 54th Massachusetts was a, a guy named Samuel Harrison who he is expecting to be paid $100 a month and he's as a chaplain, and he's only getting 10 minus three, so seven. And he protested and said, look, I'm a chaplain. I need this money and I was promised it. And in that case, Lincoln actually acts to make sure he gets equal pay. But for most soldiers, they're suffering and there's a lot of protest. Frederick Douglass comes to the White House in August of 1863 And he pushes Lincoln on this issue. And Lincoln responds by saying, essentially, you know, Black men who have become free during the war, they have to consider some sort of monetary value in that. And there's a lot of racism in the North. And I can't act on this just yet. Just politically, it's not feasible. And Frederick Douglass went away from this meeting, not altogether satisfied with that answer. He, He wanted action. But he came away from that meeting with sort of a broader understanding of the political pressures and constraints on Lincoln. And these letters and these meetings, I think prompted Lincoln though, and prompted Congress so that in June of 1864, Congress passes a law upping the pay for all black soldiers who had been born free or who had been free in April of 1861 when the war began. And then finally in August of 1865, Congress and Lincoln equalized the pay for all Black soldiers. So it takes takes a while, but ultimately, they're able to get equal pay. And I think that that was because of the activism and the protesting of the Black men and women who write to Lincoln, who mutiny on the battlefield, and people like Frederick Douglass, who come to the White House, meet with Lincoln, and really bring this issue to his attention.
0: So you mentioned Douglass. What is Lincoln and Douglass's relationship? How do they get along? Obviously, there are some disparities between what Douglas once accomplished and possibly what Lincoln feels he can accomplish. So, what is the relationship there?
1: Yeah, Douglas is one of Lincoln's harshest critics for the first couple of years of the war. When Lincoln is elected and then inaugurated, he writes editorials in his newspaper where he calls Lincoln the South's greatest slave hound and abolitionism's worst enemy, because Douglas believes that Lincoln's moderate approach to slavery is going to benefit the south and Lincoln in 1861 says look the fugitive slave act is the law and I have to enforce it that's what the constitution requires me to do so douglas is one of lincoln's harshest critics early in the war but beginning in 1863, when they meet together and then they meet again in August of 1864, Douglass's view of Lincoln really changes and Douglas grows to have incredible admiration for Lincoln. They meet again for a third time in March of 1865 when Lincoln is inaugurated for the second time. And by then, Douglas just has very deep affection for Lincoln. And so you see this really great transformation. I was in Washington, D.C., about 16 hours ago, and we spent about four hours at Lincoln Park, which is on East Capitol Street, about 10 to 14 blocks um, east of the U.S. Capitol building. And in that park, it's a dog park now, and my kids were running around playing, but in the middle of that park is a statue of Abraham Lincoln standing like this, hovering over a black man who's rising up out of bondage. And Douglass delivered the dedication speech at that statue in April of 1876. And that speech, I think, is one of the most misunderstood documents in Frederick Douglass's body of writing. It's often viewed as a critique of Lincoln. And in a sense, it is. In that speech, Douglas opened up by rehashing all of the criticisms he had leveled towards Lincoln about the Fugitive Slave Act and Lincoln prioritizing union over freedom. And he re- recounted the Greeley letter about the my paramount object. He recounted the meeting with du- between Lincoln and the Black delegation and how Lincoln had blamed Black people as the cause of the war. He recounted all of those criticisms, and a lot of people today only look at that part of the speech. But then Douglas pivots, and he essentially says that as much as Lincoln was frustrating to African Americans during the war, it seemed too slow, Douglas recognizes that Lincoln's approach had been the right one, that if Lincoln had acted too quickly against slavery, he would have alienated the border states, which would have cost the Union the war. If Lincoln had acted too quickly, he wouldn't have saved the Union. And if he hadn't saved the Union, then slavery would have survived. And so Douglass essentially takes the position of, I was wrong and Lincoln was right. And, And he says infinite wisdom couldn't have sent a better person more suited to his task than Abraham Lincoln. Well, so when we get to the end of the war, uh, Lincoln
0: issues or gets past the 13th Amendment. Is this something he always wants to get done? Or uh, is it something that kind of his views progress? Um, it, It doesn't seem like it's quite the right time in the eyes of the American public. So why does he decide to
1: do this? Lincoln was worried about the Emancipation Proclamation because he knew it could easily be struck down in the courts. He wrote it in a way that he hoped would protect it from that. But Roger Taney, the infamous author of the Dred Scott decision, is the chief justice of the United States until October of 1864 when he dies. And so from the moment Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, he's concerned about whether or not it'll be struck down and the way and and also what happens when the war is over he's issued it as a war measure so when the war is over does that mean slaves are no longer free or does that mean that it can be rescinded or if he loses the election of 1864 the next president can just come in and rescind it so he wants a permanent solution to the slavery question and so as early as I don't know when he first came out publicly in support of the 13th Amendment, but as early as June of 1864, the Republican Party adopts it into its national platform that we are running as a party to amend the Constitution. Lincoln calls the amendment the king's cure. This is going to be how we solve the issue, get rid of the slavery issue for all time. And then, as you pointed out in the Lincoln movie by Spielberg, from the moment of Lincoln's reelection in November of 64 until January 31st, 1865, Lincoln and his administration are working behind the scenes to get the lame duck House of Representatives to pass the amendment so that it can go out to the state's for ratification. That's his final legislative priority um, in that period or his, his biggest one to try to get that through Congress. And he succeeds. It's, it's funny. It's a major turn. Because in his first inaugural address, Lincoln supported what would have been a 13th Amendment, the Corwin Amendment, which would have said slavery is protected in the states where it exists, and this is an unamendable amendment to the Constitution. So from 61 to 65, Lincoln goes from supporting an unamendable pro-slavery amendment to the Constitution to supporting an amendment that abolishes slavery. It's a pretty, pretty incredible turn of events.
0: Yeah. So he's had quite a shift, it seems like. I mean, he's always uncomfortable with slavery, uh, but by the time his presidency is almost up or not almost up, but the war is almost up right. I mean, yeah, for him. And his
1: presidency, he just doesn't know it yet. Yeah, right.
0: Um, he He's getting the 13th Amendment passed. So he gets that passed. Uh, the war comes to an end. What are his goals now? I mean, obviously, we only have a few days before um, John Wilkes Booth assassinates him tragically at Forge Theater. But what was he planning to accomplish? What did he want to do uh, in the aftermath? How is he going to help these um, all these millions of enslaved peoples who have now been freed?
1: Yeah, he has a big fight on his hands. So, the radicals in Congress ha- for the last few months have kind of held their tongues. Because they wanted to win the election and get the 13th Amendment through. But what's on the horizon is going to be a big fight because Lincoln has a very moderate approach to reunion and reconstruction. He wants to bring the states back into the union. He believes in getting ex-Confederates back into the body politic. But hand in hand with that, he now wants black Southerners and black Northerners, for that matter, to be brought into the body politics. So Lincoln has this sense of we're going to bring the states back together from Lincoln's perspective. This war has been a war to prove that democracy works, that elections work, that if if you win an election, people can't just leave. And so he wants to bring them back in and restore them as citizens. Mm -hmm. But. The radicals in Congress don't want that. Many radicals, people like Thaddeus Stevens, they want to punish the white South. They want to potentially take land away from former plantation owners and redistribute it to former slaves. They want to keep white Southerners out of the body politic unless they can prove that they were loyal the whole time. And so Lincoln knows he's gonna have a big fight on his hands. And it's interesting. When Lincoln is assassinated, there are some radical Republicans who rejoice at it because they think, all right, now we got this moderate guy out of the way. He did his job. He got us through the war. Now we have Andrew Johnson, this southerner who hates the plantation owners. He's going to be on our side. This is going to work out great. And they actually privately rejoice that Lincoln has been killed. Now, it ends up not being at all what they expected because Johnson takes an even more conservative approach than Lincoln would have. And that leads to an even bigger fight with um, Congress. But, you know, I think if Lincoln had survived and been part of those political fights, we might not have him in the deified way that we do because he would have been caught up in some really ugly political issues that would have not turned out as well as in a sense, the war did. Um, so in a sense, him being shot on Good Friday um, led him to become a permanent Christ figure in, in our national history, whereas if he had survived, he might not have the same reputation that he does.
0: Yeah, it, it seems almost like he has this perfect destiny. I mean, he comes from nothing steps in, saves the union, um, and then is shot and it it, almost right after he finishes the job. So it does seem kind of strange. So overall, what do you think of Lincoln's views on race? We kind of went through his life Mm -hmm. um, starting with that trip to New Orleans um, and then his time in the state legislature, his time as president during the Civil War. What do you think kind of the overarching theme is before we talk about your books a bit? Uh, What do you think his views on race are? How would you kind of summarize them?
1: Yeah, I think they. it's important to realize that the Lincoln of 1864 is not the Lincoln of 1840 or 1837, that they change over time. He, he has some views as an early man. I mean, look, white supremacy was the norm in this country in the 19th century. And when I say white supremacy, I don't mean, you know, neo-Nazis marching around with tiki torches chanting anti-Semitic slogans, but I mean that most white Americans, the vast majority, believe that the United States is a country for them. And not only them, but like for white men. And Lincoln, to some extent, buys into that. I mean, Lincoln says at one point, you know, if if there's going to be a superior and an inferior race, he has no problem with white people being the superior race. That's, he's okay with that. But his views begin to change, I think, in a in a powerful way in the 1850s, and then especially in the 1860s, where in the 1850s, it was illegal in Illinois for black people to serve on juries or vote or serve in the militia. And in 1853, the state of Illinois made it illegal for black people to move to Illinois. And if they moved there, they, either had to leave within a very short period of time or pay a $50 fine. And if they couldn't pay the fine, they'd get arrested and auctioned off and white people could come and buy their labor and they would have to work without pay for a period of time to pay off that debt. I mean, that sounds a little bit like slavery in the free state of Illinois. And so even within that political context, by the late 1850s, Lincoln starts to take positions that are very different from the vast majority of his neighbors. In in 1857, he gives a powerful speech in response to the Dred Scott decision where he, he uses black women as his example and says, black women deserve the rights embodied in the Declaration of Independence, the right of consent, the right to eat the bread that they earn by the sweat of their own brow, the right to be free and to choose to do certain things. And that runs in the face of the way most white people think about race. And so while Lincoln's not as progressive as maybe we wish he had been in the 1850s, he is light years ahead of most people in the United States at that time. And then by the 1860s, as he's encountering black people in a way that he never had before. I mean, he had known some black people in in Illinois As an adult, he had about 25 black law clients, he knew servants, his barber was a good friend, I mean he knew some people but when he moves to Washington DC he's surrounded by a much larger black population and his interactions with them, you know he's willing to shake their hands and that might not seem like a big deal to us today but most white people would not shake a black hand in the 1860s horace greeley the guy the newspaper editor who wrote that editorial the prayer of 20 millions in 1872 ran for president and refused to shake the hands of a black delegation in pennsylvania who went wanted to meet him so lincoln lincoln shows an incredible amount of empathy towards black people that most white people wouldn't have. And I think, again, that's the result of, that's part of his personality that he shows concern for humanity. And he sees how the war is transforming the nation. And I think the war transforms him. And he, um, you know, the Lincoln of 1865 is supporting black voting rights. It's allowing black people into the white house in a way that no president had ever done, not only for political conversations, but private personal meetings and even some social functions. And that's not Lincoln in 1840, but that's the Lincoln who is alive at the end of his life.
0: Yeah, he's, he's adapted. He's changing throughout his life. So you've written two books on Lincoln. Um, we can see them behind you. So let's talk about to address you as my friend first. So you said this is a collection of letters.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this one has 125 letters from African Americans to Lincoln, about 120 120- of them are from men, a hundred some or so, and about 20 or so are from women, so most of them are from men, and they write to Lincoln for all sorts of different things, so some of them are thank you notes, thank you for issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, some of them are former slaves who write to Lincoln because now they've learned how to read, and they want the president to see what they're learning. But the vast majority are people petitioning Lincoln because they have problems. So some of them are convicts who have been court-martialed in the Army or convicted of a crime in Washington, D.C., and they want Lincoln to pardon them. Many of them have to do with the pay issue. Some of them are wives and sisters of soldiers, and they want to know where their family members are. They're, they haven't heard from their brothers and sons who are in the Army, and they wanna know, do you know where my husband is? I haven't heard from him for a long time. Some of them are people who have problems with their neighbors or local authorities and they don't know where to turn. So they, they turn to Lincoln. And the letters as a whole just give a, an incredible portrait of African-American life in the 19th century. One of the problems with writing African-American history in the 19th century is that literacy rates were very low. And oftentimes, the only way to get black voices is that a white person had a conversation with a black person or overheard a conversation or overheard a black person say something and wrote it down. And so it'll often be written with very condescending kind of vernacular. And it's what the white person heard or think they heard, and it's not necessarily what the black person said. And so one of the beautiful things about this book is it gives you the black voices in their own hand. And so You can you can hear what they said because they wrote it for themselves and um, you get to see the various issues that they write to the president about and it gives a lot of insight into their daily lives.
0: Sounds like a pretty powerful primary source book you got there.
1: Yeah, I've used it in class now and I've used and I know some other professors who've used it in class. And it's, it's great because for me, when I teach, I love to get students digging into primary source documents and analyzing them for themselves. And so, yeah, they can we read the letters and then just talk about what they mean and why these people felt confident writing to the president about all sorts of issues in their lives
0: yeah and so your other one is a house built by slaves correct yeah yep. Yeah, so we can see that there as well uh so what's this one about um the other one's a primary source document is this one kind of similar or, or what is this one
1: yeah so these started as a single project i wanted to call it emphatically the black man's president which is a quote from frederick Douglass, and then the subtitle was going to be african-american correspondence and conversations with abraham lincoln And I I very quickly realized that I had too much material for a single book. So I broke it into two. And so to address you as my friend is just the letters. And then a house built by slaves is the stories of the black men and women who came to the White House to meet with Lincoln. There's a little bit of overlap because a handful of these letters were actually brought to the White House and presented to Lincoln as petitions. But then this one tells a whole number of stories. So some of them are famous people. Frederick Douglas met Lincoln three times. Sojourner Truth met Lincoln a, a handful of times. Robert Smalls, the former slave from South Carolina, met Lincoln in August of 1862. So there's a lot of famous people who pop up in the book. But then there are a lot of people who are, have just been completely forgotten and they come to meet with Lincoln. So, There are former slaves who run away uh, from their owners and they come to Washington, D.C. and they're starving. And so they come to Lincoln. I need food. I need provisions. What can you do for me as as the president? There are ministers who come to Lincoln and they say we want to go and evangelize former slaves and teach them how to read and preach the gospel to them? Will you support our ministries? There are Black recruiters who come to the White House. We want to raise Black men for the Union Army. Will you help us do that? There are pro-colonization people who come and they say, hey, we know Congress gave you $600,000. Can I have some of that money and go to Africa and take people with me? And so there are all sorts of people coming to the White House. And you know, prior to the Civil War, African Americans were more likely to be bought and sold by sitting presidents at the White House than to be welcomed as guests. And beginning in in April of 1862, Black men begin claiming that right to go to meet with the president, going to his office hours and talking to him. And, you know, that is a major transformation in the history of the of the united states that i think has been lost for 160 years and so i took the title from michelle obama's 2016 dnc speech where she talked about she she talked about the history of racial transformation in the country from slavery to civil rights and then she said so that every morning i wake up in a house that was built by slaves and i thought that's a really powerful image and i wanted to tell a story that has been completely forgotten um, about one moment from 1862 to 65, where that transformation took place in the White House. And, you know, if Lincoln hadn't died, who knows how things would have been different. Andrew Johnson continues the tradition of meeting with black people at the White House for about a year. But in February of 1866, Frederick Douglass and other black leaders go and meet with Johnson and they push for the right to vote. And Johnson is extraordinarily hostile towards them and it turns into a shouting match, and Douglas leaves, and Johnson uses the N word to describe him and says that Douglas would slit a white man's throat if he could. And that is kind of the turning point where Black people no longer feel welcome at the White House in the way that they had during the Lincoln years. Uh, you know, Grant, I think, was a great civil rights advocate, and that has come out recently in biographies by Ronald White and Ron Chernow and others. But even in Grant's administration, in in my book, I have a little anecdote where Julia Grant was about to have a a reception, and a servant comes to her and says, what do we do if, if Black people come? And Julia Grant says, well, this is my party, and they're welcome. And none come. And Grant, Mrs. Grant, then says something like, you know, that." was basically the way it was moving forward. By the late 1860s and into the 1870s, black people feel very unwelcome at the White House. By the time you get to 1901, when Teddy Roosevelt invites Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner, these meetings that Lincoln had had with black people are completely forgotten. And white Southerners react to Roosevelt's gesture by saying, this is unprecedented that a president would invite Black people to the White House. And it's going to be a long time until things change again. I mean, Jesse Owens was not invited to the White House after winning the gold. FDR just politically wouldn't do it. JFK wouldn't allow Sammy Davis Jr. to stay at the White House in the 1960s. Part of that was, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. had a white wife. And so there were other racial dynamics there. But it's going to be another century or more until the White House is... Um, opened up to African-Americans in the way that it it could have been and and had begun to be in the early 1860s.
0: So they sound like good companion pieces for each other. They kind of support each other a bit. Yeah, I think, you know, that your viewers should buy them together
1: as a box set. That's the
0: way to do it. (laughs) I agree. I mean, they both sound fascinating. I'm going to pick up copies myself. Definitely want to read them. So I, I implore anyone out there listening to do that as well. Well, Dr. White, is there anything else you would like to share with us, or anything, any way that um, viewers or listeners can reach out to you and contact you if they have further questions?
1: Sure. I've got a website. It's jonathanwhite.org, or you can follow me on Twitter at Civil War John, and it's J O N. There's no H in the John, Civil War John. So uh, I'm happy to connect with people. Or if you Google me, you can find my email address through Christopher Newport University, and I'm always happy to. Um, hear from folks, so yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, that's perfect. I mean I think I think it's really these issues about Lincoln and race are really relevant today as our nation is thinking about the history of race in this country. and I'm hoping to make my small contribution to that larger public debate through these books. It
0: sounds like you've definitely done that. Well, thank you for your time. It's been a great discussion.
1: Yeah, thank you so
0: much thank you for joining us for this discussion with dr jonathan white i hope you enjoyed this discussion on african americans and lincoln i also hope you'll join us next week as we sit down with tom van winkle of the central virginia battlefields trust to discuss battlefield preservation also please go to the civilwarcenter.com and subscribe to our newsletter and check out the content we have there and as always please like share and subscribe and i hope to see you next week